The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Charlie Weston before five o'clock was telling us about wholesale fuel prices are running about 300% higher than usual. What's the word in government circles as to the likely price of fuel later in the year and the complications arising from that? Well, I mean, it's only going in one direction and that's uh, rapidly upwards. And I think that that's a trend that we've seen over the last really year or so, but it's been accelerating, obviously, since the war in Ukraine. And I think it's going to come to a head, as we all know, this autumn. And the the outworkings of that could be really quite serious. We have a story in today's Irish Times which details the potential impact on people who are living in energy poverty, which is one what of these... What does energy poverty mean? So at a, at a technical level, it means that you spend more than 10% of your income paying the fuel bills more or less and it excludes filling the car so it's it's the heat home effectively and that level has already increased rapidly in the last little while and there was a publication from the ESRI in June which said it had gone up to 30% which was at its highest level ever and what we found out through freedom of information requests um, and published in the paper today is that really we only saw about half of that ESRI report because there was a second part of it which is done up in private for this high powered group of officials which is charged with running effectively the state's response to the energy crisis crisis and they got to see the really ugly stuff what would happen if there was not just a 25% increase which was published in the in the energy um, 25% increase in the cost of energy which was published but also a 50% increase or a 100% increase so a doubling which of what we've seen like recently which outlandish figures but actually aren't no they exactly and it's look well, this is not dissimilar from what we saw with the financial crisis brexit and then covid where the worst case scenario all of a sudden can become the most likely outcome and if you look at you know the trajectory that we've seen in the last year, if you take the most recently published CSO stats to that the year to, to, to July, it's a 48% increase in energy costs. So when you're talking about that, all of a sudden, 100% increase doesn't seem that outlandish. And the outworkings of that, if we were to see a 100% increase uh, again, based on the, the, the most recent kind of period that they measured, 70% of households in the country would be in energy poverty. I mean, that's not a question of who's vulnerable sorts, to it, it's yeah. a question of who isn't vulnerable to it. Then that has all sorts of impact, because that would suggest that people people will have to make choices in relation to their spending if they have choices available to them. But it means they might spend less on lots of other things, which then causes an economic fallout. And in addition to that, how concerned should we be then that businesses will find themselves unable to do the things that they normally do because their bills have gone up so much. Exactly. And I don't think it's a question of people, you know, that they might stop spending. They will stop spending, you know, because the first thing to do is to heat and to eat. And the thing that gets sacrificed is the the socialising, the going out budget and the, the discretionary spending. And I think the same is true for businesses. So you will see margins being squeezed across the board. There will also be a commensurate political pressure to do something as they did during the spring to backstop not just households. We all know that there's going to almost certainly be another electricity credit announced at budget time, but also to backstop businesses. You know, we, we saw the state step in and support businesses during COVID. And I think that may set the kind of pattern. And in fact, we know that they've already sought approval from Brussels for a couple of schemes to help support the private sector, uh, particularly energy thirsty companies who may be impacted in the autumn. So I think you'd be looking at the state and the government to step up and building that kind of political pressure to really do something meaningful to offset the impact of these costs. Uh, Don Moore, you're a former head of ESB International. This is your area of expertise. A 100% rise in fuel prices might seem like scaremongering, but is it really? Is it something that we should be preparing for the possibility of? I think we should prepare for it. But um, 
to some extent it's outside our control and I would be more concerned that we would be taking actions now that would secure our long-term price competitiveness. I mean, before any of this crisis emerged, Ireland had the most expensive electricity in Europe. If you take tax off, other countries tax electricity, we don't. And so the underlying, the underlying cost of electricity in Ireland was very high. Now, everything we've heard recently suggests it will go even higher. And uh, because of the lack of uh, foresight on, on the part of the government in not preparing for what is uh, an electricity generation deficit, we're likely to be pushed into ever more expensive solutions. So, uh, I mean, the issue is... Um, the government expressed a surprise at the weekend that there was going to be a shortage of um, uh, electricity generation. And why they were surprised is an absolute mystery to me, because this was flagged by Airgrid back in 2017. It's not a secret. Airgrid is tasked with actually producing an energy capacity statement. That means they look ahead 10 years and they take everything into account from the IDA, they look at the sort of industries that are likely to land in Ireland. They look at population increases. So five years ago, they were forecasting that we were going to be in trouble. And um, Airgrid reports to the Department of Energy. Uh, well, they're called they're called the Environment, Communication and Transport, but, but in, energy is included in there. So it, why, why it should be a mystery to the government that we're short, we're short of... Um, gas-fired uh, um, uh, generation capacity, and any short-term solutions are likely to be expensive ones. Yeah, what sort of short-term solutions can you put in place? Well, they were talking last October about uh, importing emergency generation. This, this wouldn't be proper power stations. These would be things that would come in in the back of a truck. Now, Sorry, these are a bit like the sort of backup generators that you might would, have yeah, in events in the, in, in the case of the electricity gets switched off. Yeah, and, and that's expensive generation. And generally speaking, it has a much higher, you know, um, um, uh, CO2 em, em, emissions as well. That is, that's the sort of thing I associate with developing countries who don't plan properly. And we now find ourselves in this category here. Just, I mean, to actually build a power station, which is what we're going to have to do in the future, takes three to four years. So it requires long-term planning. Sorry, and what sort of power station are you talking about building? Because and I thought the whole thing was about using wind energy and solar energy and biomethane and things like that uh, to put them into the system rather than building new power plants. Well, there is a plan. The, uh, the Climate Action Plan says we should add another... 10,000 megawatts of renewable energy, and that's mainly onshore and offshore wind and, and, and a smaller amount of solar, okay? But all of that has to be backed up with conventional generation. What happens if the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining? So that's always been in the background. It hasn't, that fact hasn't been shared with the public, you know? But it's always been there, and it's understood. There, w w there are days when the wind contributes 1% to Ireland's electricity generation. So you have to have power stations on standby waiting to be brought onto the system. Again, uh, I think the public were surprised last October when they heard about this because 
you know, it's all been about renewable energy. And by the way, and rightly so, we, we should be adding all of this renewable energy. Um, but it has to be backed up by conventional generation. And we have not been adding that to the system. The existing conventional generation, these gas turbine combined cycle plants, are aging. And they were originally designed to be running 24-7. You know, in fact, some of them would have run continuously for a whole year. They're not designed to be stopping and starting. They degrade very quickly. So that's why we've got, we have a lot of breakdowns Don, in plants now. Yeah? A lot of people are asking, did we close down some of the things that we had too quickly, these sort of ageing coal stations and peat stations that done for good environmental reasons but done before we had sufficient alternatives in place? Well, the peat stations we did close down, but they were small. That's a small amount of generation. It was planned to actually close down Money Point, which is 900 megawatts. That's the biggest station on the system. That's, that was planned to be closed down in the next two years. It was already been phased out. It now looks like we're going to have to continue with Money Point indefinitely until we can add new gas turbine stations to the system. Again, this was never shared with the public, and I don't know why, because everyone in the industry understood this. But in the Climate Action Plan, I'm not aware there was any mention of backup power, you know. And um, instead, uh, whenever challenged about this, politicians would start talking about green hydrogen, you know. And by the way, that's a fuel that could be burned in these stations in the future, except that it doesn't exist at the moment. This is, um, this is a, a, a technology that's in the future, and I hope by the mid-2030s, it will start to come on the system. But for now, we're stuck with gas. And, and we, have, we have taken no steps whatsoever to protect ourselves in this regard. We have no gas storage, unlike every other country in the EU, none. We chose, for example, to close down when the Kinsale gas field was depleted. We could have used it to actually store gas. Well, what I mean by that is, during the summer when demand is low, you could pump gas into the, into the field, and then during the peak season in the winter, you could release it. Germany has 100 days gas storage, and they, they've managed to more or less fill that now, so that will take them through the winter. Austria actually has nearly a year's gas storage, and we, at the very end of the gas network, have none, and that was a direct policy decision. We've also decided... Not to, not to explore for any more gas in our seas when we're actually going to need it for at least the next 20 years. And, um, and we all, we've also decided not to have any LNG. That's gas brought in in a, in a tanker. And um, so all of these things countries do to add security to their system. And Don, sorry, there's quite a few listeners also suggesting, well, if we'd gone down the nuclear route, we wouldn't have this problem. Of course, there's a ban, a legal ban about actually bringing in nuclear. It would take a long time to do. But if we were to do it, would it be one, environmentally friendly? And two, would it actually supply an awful lot of our electricity needs? Well, you know, back in 1979, um, uh, ESB was preparing to build a nuclear power station down in Carnesaur. And after protests led by Christy Moore, Michael D. Higgins and whatever, the government panicked and decided we wouldn't go down the nuclear route. Instead, we built a 900-megawatt coal-fired power station at Money Point, which has been the biggest 
emitter of greenhouse gases ever since. Had we built that nuclear power station, um, it would still have a life of another 20 or 30 years. Um, so be careful what you wish for. There is a, there's a new technology that's now been, there are great hopes for, and that's called small modular nuclear reactors. So these are derived from the sort of nuclear reactors that power ships. So they're much, much smaller, much more flexible, and it, 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 it's a hope that in 10 years' time they would be a viable way okay. of packing up. The, but but, but it's, it's in the future. For now, and this is the horrible truth, because we haven't planned the, the, um, the difficulties in terms of not having sufficient capacity this year, we could have it next year and the year after as well. Because, as I said, it takes three to four years to build, to build a, a, okay. a power station. Don Moore, thank you for being with us. Just to finish, Jack Horgan-Jones, the government is going to have to do things in the budget in giving cash or credits to citizens to help deal. Is there also going to be significant money invested in new generation capacity to deal with all of these issues for the future? Yeah, and Eamon Ryan would say that the short-term... Um Investments are already being made uh, around renewables, and he said that you know wind and solar is going to come onto the system in an increasing way over the next coming years. But there does need to be investment in conventional uh, in conventional generation as well, and gas-fired peaking plants. I think what would be more interesting, though, is if some of the kind of shibboleths that the Green Party has on a policy front might need to be reconfronted. On it. I'm particularly thinking of uh, LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas, which we know is, is is in the ether as part of this energy security review, which is supposed to be published at the end of September. So what what will it say about LNG and also the, the prospect of further exploration? I know that there's a ban on issuing new licenses, but there are other licenses out there that are kind of laying dormant or looking for extensions. So, you know, is there an argument perhaps being made for looking for more gas or oil offshore, you know, which would lessen our, our, our energy security dependence, particularly on the UK? Thank you very much. Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter with the Irish Times. As it happens, uh, I have a new magnified podcast edition that was uploaded today uh, on the Go Loud app or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And it's with Eamon Ryan. It's an hour-long interview that I did with him yesterday uh, on many of the issues in relation to energy, particularly offshore wind farms and also the whole issue with electric cars and whether they can actually be catered for if there's a shortage of electricity. And we will play an extract from that Eamon Ryan interview in the Magnified series on tomorrow night's programme, but the full uh, interview is available now if you are interested in hearing more from the Green Party leader and the relevant minister. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here.